Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today, we've got Emily Paxia and Morgan Paxia. They're both the co-founders of uh, Side and Asset Management. Guys, thanks for being on The Talking Hedge. Thanks, thanks for having, having us. So for those who haven't heard of Poseidon Asset Management, you guys have been around for a long time. I've been following you since 2015, uh, before Brandon of uh, Investing in Cannabis picked you guys up and that video has been seen like 5,000 times or something. But for those who haven't seen the video, who haven't heard of you, what is Poseidon Asset Management? Go ahead, Morgan. Sure. Uh, Poseidon was founded back in 2013 by Emily and I, we're brother-sister team. And, you know, we basically saw an opportunity to start, uh, you know, bringing a, a true institutional approach to investing in cannabis. At the time, there wasn't anything like that um, as far as, as bringing, you know, true portfolio level minded investing. And, you know, there were some early kind of uh, uh, incubated ideas, which are great, uh, but we just thought it was a, a differentiated approach and, um, you know, bringing a fund to the industry, very diversified, broadly, uh, initially broadly uh, diversified across the industry. Uh, just thought it was a, a unique opportunity and something that we we're very passionate about from a social justice perspective, you know, as far as, as moving uh, legalization forward and trying to help shape the industry in a positive direction, you know, being kind of the first ones in the market, bringing capital to the market. Uh, we've always believed that capital, uh, can be a positive change agent. And, you know, having a chance to do that out the gate, we thought would be, you know, very valuable long-term, not only for our investors, but for, you know, shaping a, what would be a multi-billion dollar global industry. Now, Emily, you came, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you come from the East Coast to the San Francisco area? And then you went to like a medical dispensary and you saw some products and you're like, okay, this, this is something to invest in. Like, how did that, what inspired you and how did that happen? So there, there were kind of two moments that really drove getting into this space. Um, the first was, I remember riding in the, a car across the Golden Gate Bridge, and I was looking at the SF Gate, and there were advertisements for cannabis dispensaries and cannabis product companies. And I was like, this is crazy. After living in Boston and New York for about 10 years before that, just coming to the West Coast and seeing that not only is it legal in California, which there were... It was very gray regulations at that time, but <clears throat> but the fact that these companies could be advertising, um, and I'll say that the advertisements I saw, coming from my background of consulting with um, consumer product companies, fashion brands, um, finance companies, you know, just saw a lot of room for improvement. And so whenever there's room for improvement, there's opportunity to participate and drive growth. So. Um, then I just, you know, started to pay more attention to what was going on in in San Francisco. And you have stores like Spark and Apothecarium, and they do not look like what you would anticipate. Maybe some of the, you know, old um, fly-by-night operations would look like. These were real retail operations. They looked like boutique hotels or high-end retail experiences. And so it was clear that they were really building a brand about around quality and product assortment. Um, but yet, if you know you go into one of these dispensaries back in 2014, you're having this beautiful retail experience, and then you're getting you're able to look at a brownie that's in a um, plastic bag with a business card stapled to it, and that was like a consumer product. <laughs> so, it, and that the, the at the um, point of sale, they were doing the ledger on pencil and paper. And 
you know, it's just like, and, and those are the, like the cues and clues that really indicate that there's a ton of opportunity to look at ways to invest along the entire cannabis supply chain. And that's how Morgan and I started talking about this. I actually was walking down Ashburn. I live up in um, the upper Haight area in San Francisco. And I was walking down Ashbury Street on the phone with Morgan, and we were talking about how we thought this could be the opportunity of a generation. Well, good call, because it, it is. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite investments that you guys have made have been headset. So I've, I've known Cy Scott since he was at Leafly, and he was doing the cannabis tech in Seattle early on. And the data analytics out of that is, is phenomenal. Um, so easily one of my favorite companies and easily one of my favorite, you know, uh, companies that you've invested in. But what is your favorite? What is something that that either comes um, to mind that that um, you really like or that is even maybe even your favorite investment that you've made so far? And then we'll kind of get into uh, what you guys are going to be investing in. I mean, I just want to just kind of tie the line through on headset too, because I think that headset is really getting traction in the product company space and the retail space in, in cannabis, because the real-time data and, and the way that they present the data really can drive business decisions. And it's been incredibly necessary during the vape hysteria that happened last fall or two falls ago. And then also through the pandemic, understanding what was really driving through this massive shift in consumer behavior around cannabis. So I just can't say enough, but from for the investor audience, I think it's something that has not yes, has necessarily been picked up enough yet. And I can just say that my, our whole team is on the headset dashboard all day. And obviously I'm talking my book, I love the company, but um, I think from an investor landscape is people, I, I mean, it's clear people are paying more and more attention to this industry. And I think that savvy investors always use information as their edge and and data is is absolutely a driver of that information edge so anyway um morgan do you want to talk about one of your we don't have favorites we say we don't have favorites, <laughs> but we'll talk about you know they're all special to yeah, us. which one which one comes to mind then uh for its uniqueness uh, or specialty well i'll check off a unique one uh one we're actively working with right now uh to close a round of financing is industrial hemp processing company called Bascor. Um, it is, you know, innovating in the, you know, primarily or initially into the textile industry. Um, so this doesn't have anything to do with THC. This is on the industrial hemp. This isn't CBD. This is again, industrial hemp, which is very unique. This is something that's very, very new uh, up and coming technology that can, you know, potentially penetrate a multi-trillion dollar end markets and textiles is one of them. And so for us, that is, couldn't be more differentiated from canvas, which we love. And we obviously work in all day, every day, but it's just so interesting to be a part of something that is still genetically, uh, you know, ties back to the same origins, but couldn't be more different and things for clothing, uh, you know, some of the partnerships they're working with and, you know, they're just about to enter commercialization, starting to sell their, their fiber to um, end consumers that can make things like denim. Uh, for us, I think that is just truly a differentiated investment that um, most people aren't talking about. As Emily mentioned, you know, I think we're at Poseidon, we have kind of a, a history at this point of, of being at the front edge of the curve and thinking about where the things are heading and trying to position uh, with really great people ahead of that. And, uh, and Bascor is one of those. I mean, we've been working with this company since 2016 in an R&D stage. 
Um, so a lot of development, a lot of IP creation, um, lots of sampling with uh, partners around the world at this point to validate the quality of their product. Um, so it's really exciting to see it coming to this point. And you know, you're you're in states that are moving towards opening up cannabis as well because the company is based in, in Alabama. And um, if you would have seen earlier this week, uh, their Senate just voted to legalize medical, which remember who was the um, former attorney general of the United States and where that person came from and now seeing medical heading to legalization in that state, but they started with industrial hemp. And so, you know, as they get more comfortable in understanding what this plant means in its various forms, we do see that as, as making positive progress. And if we can do that in, in a, from an ESG standpoint and, and just furthering um, the betterment of, of society, and for us, that's just very exciting and, and again, very differentiated. It's good. Good call. I want to kind of ask you a question about um, some predictions that um, we had, or not predictions, I guess. Um, let me pull this up here. So some of the investing trends, I guess, that we kind of saw in 2019. So I kind of want to take a, a, a look in the rear view before we, we move forward with investing. And I kind of want to see your thoughts on how things went pre-pandemic and then where things are going to be going afterwards. So in 2019, we saw a lot of multi-state operators with uh, the top investing trends, you know, moving into 2019. Along with data, we mentioned headset and the importance of that. Consumption lounges, um, totally derailed by the pandemic and sidelined. Uh, with some honorable mentions, like you mentioned, Emily, that whole vape crisis that we saw, then there was accurate dosing and then beverages, which we've seen, you know, billions of dollars being written off uh, up north in Canada. Mm -hmm. So with these, with this list, you guys see anything uh, from 2019 that you either wish you had invested in or wish you hadn't uh, with the way things have moved post COVID. I kind of want to, or uh, post pandemic, oops, <laughs> want to talk about uh, before that um, with all of these investment trends, where do you guys, where did you invest um, back then and what did you, what do you feel like you missed out on? Uh, you know, the, the one thing that would, so we didn't invest into consumption lounges. Um, to me, that's kind of a confluence of restaurant hospitality and cannabis. And there's a high failure rate in the restaurant space. So you have to be really thoughtful about how you approach it. Um, I think if a retail operator has it as a part of a piece of their full vertical and something, an additional offering for more brand exposure. I think that's something to think about. And one of our operators does have that piece to it, but it is built into the entire infrastructure. So you're not kind of betting on that one piece. I think that's, that's a little bit different for us. And, and we think that, and they have had, they were one of the first to have a consumption lounge back in the day. So they've just got the history of having done it successfully and have done it well in the eyes of the regulators. Um, so, you know, we, the one place that wasn't listed in there that we have invested into is more just along the entire software aspect of the industry, which as these operators, as the MSOs continue to expand their operations, there's not a lot of efficiencies that can be achieved across state lines due to like packaging 
um, considerations, labeling considerations. You have to have your vertical within each state. So there's challenges to get those efficiencies of scale. But one thing you can achieve that with is in software. And then your software, if you can have that pulling into centralized hubs, you can really have a full operational view of how you're running across all of your different regions and markets. Um, we've been very cautious to endeavor into branded products, and that does include beverage. And that does have to do a little bit or a lot to do with our, our access to data and the way we look at what's in the levers that are being pushed and pulled and driving growth on that. And also just our background in understanding, you know, when you work with, when you consult with PepsiCo, when you look at how these companies build brands, you understand the magnitude of capital that is required and the time. Um, and so we have to be very cognizant of our timeline to exit because we have specific strategies with specific timelines. And we also try to figure out how to allocate our capital the most efficiently. And it's our opinion that um, we're going to see a few waves of brand development, and we have not yet seen the brands that are necessarily here to stay forever and ever. I think we have a couple of front runners. You might see like Awana, Akiva, some of those brands emerging, but um, they're going to have to fight hard to keep that position because there's a lot of people coming for their lunch. So, and and I think they are well positioned to do it, but it's it's tough for the branded product world. And then just on the, on the beverage space, um, again, it comes down to our data. Um, you can see that you can do different pricing strategies. You can drive the price, you know, offer major discounts. It's not moving a ton of product. And as Morgan always notes, you know, we track inventory levels across the states and you can see where these things are building up. And so we're just, we're just kind of slower to allocate in those spaces where we think there's still a lot of work to be done. And, and we think we can still get in at early entry points, but we think we don't have to go through the really early rocky trajectory potentially. Um, although I will say it seems like it's starting to get to the point where we would look at it with a specific maybe early stage strategy. Um, but I don't know, Morgan, do you feel like we've missed out? Maybe we could have leaned in on some of the smaller MSOs a little bit more over the last year. Um, yeah, I mean, there's we have to, you know, very cognizant of our ROI and you know opportunity costs, and you know we felt a better play instead of the smaller MSOs was to go deeper with single state operators, and so you know, and I feel very good about that decision. I think that's becoming very attractive uh, from a you know this year it could be a very robust year from an M and A. Uh, just M&A alone. I mean, but you're looking at just a lot of capital activity uh, picking up in our space and scale is, is showing uh, value. And, and uh, you know, some of the Gen 1 MSOs that, you know, have really struggled and had to liquidate assets or, you know, blew up their, their cap structures and, you know, their common stock is worthless or near worthless um, because of just bad management, bad capital allocation, you know, there's some very good MSOs in the early days that have emerged and they're the ones that are in a very great position for consolidation. But we think in that single state vertical, uh, you know, if you go deep, uh, you know, there's always the, the mantra of, uh, you know, an inch wide and a, or an inch deep and a mile wide, uh, you know, where some of those Gen 1 MSOs. Um, and so you saw some of the better managed teams um, kind of held back on on the inch deep and started going deeper within markets that they had already won licenses in. And now as they're getting those scaled up, they're looking for additional growth in new markets. And when they're looking for those companies, they want to see good fundamentals. And if you're doing a good job staying focused in a single state, 
your fundamentals can look very good. You know, your gross margins, your EBITDA margins, um, in these even in these uh, competitive markets, um, not necessarily limited to the um, limited license markets that are more common on the East Coast. Um, so you know, it's just a, there's different timelines. Uh, you know, there definitely was a reflation trade that lifted a lot of boats uh, in the public markets, and so that certainly helped some of the smaller operators get uh, you know, as we kind of call it, one last puff in the sales. Um, but we think, you know, the great thing about investing private side is there's more time where you're not held to every single quarter for demonstrating, you know, every single metric is, you know, peeled back and looked at, there's a little more gestation period. And then those can be very interesting potential, um, exit strategies for those companies to become a part of a, a more efficient, larger ecosystem. And, um, so yeah, so that's, you know, for, for the single state, I think that was a great, um, it's just a differentiator from a time perspective and and we have good relationships with public companies uh to kind of talk about that too when they're looking at expansion efforts you know where could we potentially be helpful and and you know what are we looking at um since we do have so much focus in certain areas so when you go in and you invest in a company what when does the exit strategy come into play um, is that something that you guys talk about right off the bat, what the exit strategy is, or what is the, the entire philosophy and, and process of your investment strategy and implementation? Yeah, I mean, we're never one of the groups that's like, let's rush this to SPAC, let's rush this to exit. We're all about building to maximum um, potential for that exit timeline to get the best return possible. But um, we do have we have timelines that we have to contemplate for our fund strategies, you know? So it is one of the early conversations that we do have with the founders because we've found it's critical to have alignment. That's one of the things we've always tried to do as investors is we, we view ourselves as really the partners of the companies, not just kind of at hand, hands, uh, top down investor mentality. We like to come alongside them. And so the best, outcomes have always come from when the founders view us as that partner level. And if we're all aligned in the beginning, yeah, things change. But if you have an understanding, at least you can talk about it when it does change and navigate that together. And then there are no surprises. So um, timelines do, you know, contract and expand. Like we're, I would say we're going to probably see an exit in 2021 that I, I didn't think would happen as fast as it's happening. Um, just one to come to mind. Actually, we just had one, another one that were happening, and I didn't think that one would be happening for another year or so. So things are, you know, they expand and contract, and you have to be nimble. But it's good to have established a baseline understanding so that you don't have any misunderstandings around the objectives. You know, it's, I think some investors get into companies and then realize that um, the founder was thinking, "Oh, I'm." going to have this, this is my life's mission. I'm going to have this company forever and hasn't contemplated um, how to get the money back to the investor. And so that's where alignment comes into play. And it's also helpful for us in terms of structuring um, how we enter into an investment. And so we've done everything along the entire capital spectrum, really from, uh, you know, straight preferred equity all the way through to convertible notes all the way through to straight debt. Um, so we're very open to thinking about how those different structures work. And I'd say that served us well too. There have been a couple of investments, Morgan and I were reflecting on where people were just in the equity side and we were in the debt side and we got our, you know, principal plus about 20% out of those companies. And now one of them is basically about to fail. 
And mm. so the entire equity stack is just in the hurt locker, but we actually achieved a 20% return on that investment in three years. So pretty happy with how we've thought about all those things. It's it's helped us to sidestep a lot of the early froth and then and subsequent wipeouts that we've seen in the space. So Morgan, do you think it's possible to, to have a legacy this early in the game? Emily mentioned that the brands aren't quite there yet. And I totally agree. And I think that's somewhat controversial, actually. I think people believe that there are like these brands and there's really not, not yet. Um, but I've always said that you need an exit strategy because you don't want to be a Larry's Handy Mart in a world of 7-Elevens. The mom and pops, whether you look at uh, you know microbrews or um, individual coffee companies, those industries have kind of showed us that there's going to be the corporate before kind of the um, the companies that you want to consume. You know the the discerning flavors and and the the strains and flavor profiles that you want. All of that stuff is is maybe years out. Um, I think Burner's doing a decent job with some genetics. But um, back to my question with you, Morgan, sorry. Would you think brands are going to be, um, when are, are brands going to be a thing? And is it too early to have a legacy in this industry? Uh, I think it is. I mean, we're still just learning about form factors. We're still learning about consumer preferences, which are still changing because consumers are, you know, frankly, are, are kind of the industry guinea pig of checking new things out. You know, I mean, I think a great example was, you know, early on in the edible space, you know, it was chocolates. And then, and then all of a sudden gummies just took the industry by storm. I mean, that was just impressive to watch. And, and then you saw, um, and then brands within that, you know, uh, all of a sudden shot up that came from nowhere. Um, same thing, like in just take a simple joint, you know, that was kind of a, a very simple product, a pre-roll. And now you're seeing a lot of innovation in that category. Now there's a lot of growth with some new differentiated products, infused products that, you know, make a, a joint a lot more enjoyable than, you know, just kind of what was a very other, you know, historically had been a low priced product. You just kind of grabbed a checkout. Um, so, you know, there's just so much to be developed. Um, and I think, you know, where there could be some developing brand legacy are those that, you know, stay nimble and, and, and try things and, and try to, you know, not be too stuck in, in a certain channel. And as Emily and I always talk about, you know, you have to be dynamic and this is just so early. Um, and so brands that can navigate through these early years and, and, you know, showing new products that consumers might be attracted to. Um, but, you know, to be able to do that, they need the infrastructure and most of them are just not there yet. You know, that's why multi-state operators, are doing a good job of, uh, you know, creating some some consumer stickiness potentially because, in a lot of instances, they are literally the only game in town. <laughs> if that's the way the license works, that might be your only store, and so you might only get so many choices. Uh, but they also have the back end infrastructure, right? They control the grow, the processing, um, the manufacturing. However, what products they're creating, um, but that's why we think California and. Oregon are, are very interesting markets because it's it's more of an open market. And so it allows for innovation and creativity uh, and really uh, fun brands. You know, like I think Oregon has some of the coolest uh, brand um, development. Uh, I think California has a lot of innovative uh, product development. So between the two, it's just really interesting markets to be in. Uh, but we have a long time. I mean, just even touching on beverages, it does seem like some are getting some traction, but 
it's a long way to go. There's structural challenges with logistics and distribution that you know make that industry really hard to or that subsegment to get a lot of traction. Um, there's also technological developments around onset offset that still aren't there. You know, there's a lot of claims around it, um, but we're seeing not much differentiation in that space. So there's but there's some good attempts at branding to try to separate at least in the early days. So we'll see. Um, but for us, it's it's more focused on fundamentals and nuts and bolts and building proper infrastructure for an industry that's, you know, where were we last year, 15 billion or so heading to 50 billion. Um, that's a lot of infrastructure. That's a lot of development. It's a lot of jobs. It's a lot of capital. Um, you know, don't put the cart before the horse and, you know, just stay focused on, on good quality people that are, are building. I saw a meme that uh, had a guy in a, a Spider-Man costume and it said with, you know, uh, great powers comes great responsibility. And so I kind of think of that with first mover advantages as well. You have a lot of power and a lot of responsibility. And so yet with first mover advantages, we've seen some liabilities. Um, so with delivery, there's a certain uh, delivery company. Uh, I'll just say their name, Ease. There's $35 million and they haven't been able to do anything with that. Um I think the pandemic served for a really good opportunity and yet it failed. And so you've got other valuations uh, with weed maps, $420 million valuation. That is crazy. And just waiting for that price to dip a little bit after they go public and uh, create some shareholder lawsuits. So how do you avoid um, getting into scenarios that fail and or our liabilities with certain lawsuits? Uh, I mean, we're, we have a really rigorous due diligence process and it's long and it's deep. And I mean, we do the best we can in this industry right now. There are a lot of lawsuits going on. And I would actually say that some of them, I think, are just frivolous and spiteful mm -hmm. um, lawsuits because people feel um, like they missed out on something. Um, and frankly, because you, I, unfortunately, we live in a really litigious society and so you can sue mm -hmm. anybody for anything and it's just, you have to deal with it. And so... Um, you know, back in the day, when, you know, when I was getting into this, someone told me, you know, you know, you haven't made it until you've been sued. And so <laughs> it's like, I mean, you know, or in, in, in the, on the periphery of a company being sued as an investor, like, mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's like, uh, something you just experience in this industry at this time. But, you know, the way that we've avoided it way more than I think a lot of other people is just through due diligence and through selection of management teams and, and prudent capital allocation. It's been, I'd say, our driving force through this whole thing. And for a while, we felt like we were losing our minds. Like back when we saw some of these IPOs at a billion, a billion five, and they didn't even really have the assets that they said they had. Everything was cross-collateralized. The the management teams did not have alignment in terms of their compensation structure. They had these crazy success bonuses for IPOing, not even for like, anyway, there are so many things that were completely misaligned and we just wouldn't touch those things. And for a while we felt like, you know, we were hearing from a lot of people that they thought like, Oh, why didn't you guys do that? Why didn't you do that? And guess what? It totally paid out because we didn't do that. And so we sidestepped all of that washout and we stayed focused on the operators who are really thinking about building strong fundamentals and strong long-term businesses. And a good example of that would be, I think, GTI, who's, we've been investors in them, Morgan points out, since they had 30 people on their team, and they were still kind of that disaggregated MSO back in the day that was coming together. And 
we just really felt like the management team was focused on being prudent with their resources and allocating wisely and just building, building, building. And we've done that time and time again. And to Morgan's point, we did that with the SSOs. And I think it's really how we have managed to get around a lot of the drama that has gone on in the industry and try to stay heads down and really focused on our, our core strategy. So um, I think it's benefited us a lot um, in terms of just continuing to go forward. And just one other quick thing on yeah. that, um, the commitment to governance. Um, yes. You know, Emily is a, is a professor of governance. <laughs> really just uh, a constant uh, pushing to make sure uh, companies are doing things right. And, and another area that we're constantly pressing on is uh, respective taxes, you know, and, and just making, because uh, to your point of liability, like that's a part of this industry that so many did not treat seriously. And it's and it's serious. Um, you know, the worst case outcome <clears throat> is all investors are liable for those taxes, mm-hmm. and that is real. And you know, as companies that have not paid their taxes, if you don't think the IRS is coming, you're you're you know you're fooling yourselves because they know what's going on in this space, and they can see who are the good actors and what they're paying. And if you're not paying a commensurate amount, something doesn't add up. And so, you know, that is a big risk that we see coming to this space for those that have <coughs> cut that corner. And investors are, I don't think, aware that the liability they could be taking on participating in these companies. Um, and that ties into governance as well. So, yeah. So, I mean, we're seeing the FDA sending out letters, a lot of letters, and there's um, so many issues out there about not following uh, compliance. And it's mm-hmm. it's frightening, actually. I think that's going to be a huge issue not paying your taxes is crazy. I can, I'm thinking of two companies, one in Oregon, one in Washington, who were very successful and failed because they didn't pay their employee taxes or, or sales tax. It's crazy. And then you're going to drive around in a really nice car and, and I, it's just insane. I just don't get it. You got um, it. That's right. It's so, real. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, I want to kind of focus on moving into the future, looking at uh, cannabis's 2021 predictions. This comes from a small data set that I put together from about a little over a dozen publications, um, looking at about 70 data points and putting that together. And so all of these publications had said, these are what we think is going to happen in 2021. So I kind of want to look at this from an investment side, um, highlighting that price and profit was 2020's number one prediction that companies were going to have to um, get their books in line and focus on price and profit. And now that we're seeing this expansion after October, um, yeah, after October's election or November's election uh, and all of those states uh, going on board, um, looks like legal and regulation is kind of that focal point. So I'm curious with, um, you know, Vermont just flat out saying, yes, we're broke. We need the money. New York seeing FOMO from New Jersey and Kentucky having the, the least funded pension plan in the country. Um, I'm looking at those states and staying away from Oklahoma because they have 7,500 licenses and will make Oregon look, you know, like they're just out of cannabis entirely. Um, what are you looking at in terms of regions and what are you avoiding? Morgan, do you want to go first? Um, sure. Uh, well, I think, you know, you make a really good point in that, um, you know, we do pay attention to the structure of a market and where it is in its life cycle, um, you know, because uh, we have invested in Oregon, but we were very patient for when we entered Oregon uh, because we did see a boom bust 
set up there happening. And so we just were very patient and, and kind of let that wave play through. Um, and, you know, so, you know, and when you look east, uh, east of the Mississippi, um, you know, some of these markets get so hot um, that the prices just get bid up like crazy. And so it's really hard to get too excited about it um, and overpaying. Uh, so we just, you know, we throttle back and, and come back to areas that, you know, do not see that. So we're, you know, capital flows are, are uh, a big part of our analysis as well. And just trying to be cognizant of, so structure of the market, timing of the market and, and capital flow, uh, because, you know, there's only so many opportunities within a certain time set. And, you know, if you're just being, not being mindful, uh, you'll get on the wrong side of that. I mean, we saw companies pay $50 million for uh, a license in a state with nothing, no assets, no operations, nothing. Um, they subsequently had to write off a vast majority of it. I mean, we've seen a lot of companies just overpay and um, some of our companies have been benefactors of paying 10 cents on the dollar for what they had paid for it and, you know, or half off even 12 months later after they paid for it because we just were being smart and, and disciplined and following a process. Um, you know, we think California is a, is a very interesting market. It's, it's very difficult, um, misunderstood. Um, it has structural challenges. So I'm kind of giving you all the, all the, all the rough parts of it. But on the other side of the coin, you have the largest legal market in the world from an adult use perspective, and one that just voted in numerous municipalities in, in November to open up more adult use access for the first time that previously had no access. And so, you know, the, the state for the first time feels like there's some visibility into addressing or, or tackling or penetrating some of the illicit market um, that is a very large uh, market share still in the state, um, you know, with some additional potential movements at, at the state level you know, could really accelerate things and make this a very robust market. Um, but within the state, there's, it's a, it's a huge state, right? I mean, it's a, what is it? The fifth largest economy in the world or something. I don't, I don't know where we rank after the pandemic, but um, you know, a very, very large and geographically large. So, you know, within the state of California, you could almost think of it as, as little multi uh, you know, it's a collection of states where you even have limited license markets within California. And so if you're smart about what these markets look like, they can have very interesting metrics, but Capital has been very, very low here. Valuations as a result are very low. Um, and to us, that just sets up for a very interesting uh, opportunity set. And it takes discipline because there is legacy here. So, you know, going back to our previous point about taxes, you know, you dig into their historicals and, you know, there's a lot of phantom liabilities all of a sudden start showing up and those follow through to the, you know, who acquires the licenses. Um, so there's a lot of homework to be done. And, and so it does make M&A challenging. Uh, and there's also just, you know, such a, a wide um, spread of sophistication. And so, you know, tailoring that is, it takes a lot of effort. And, you know, we've, we've definitely leaned in with companies here in, in sorting through that. Uh, but ultimately, you know, that trajectory looks really interesting. So with MNAs, when you guys are looking at new opportunities to invest, what are you looking at? Is it is it the new market entrance, you know, in the in the East Coast or these new states that are onboarding like Arizona, Montana, New Jersey, Missouri for medical? Or are you looking at distressed assets on the West Coast? Because some of these predictions that we're looking at, there's consolidation, um, you know, still the high demand, price and profit, international expansion, investment surges, all of these things that kind of uh, overlap one another to a certain degree. Um, curious about what you guys are looking at 
um, in 2021 and beyond? Is it new markets or distressed assets? Uh, could, could it be something in between? Absolutely. Yeah. What are you guys <laughs> um, looking yeah, at? So, yeah. I mean, so I think what we're, <laughs> we are looking at some things in, in some of the single states from a consolidation standpoint, especially with some of our single state operators who are poised to be the consolidator. And we could be funding some of those endeavors to consolidate further. And so I think what we're looking at is not necessarily distressed, but operators that are just a little bit subscale and are struggling to keep up with the, the deep vertical aspect of the markets. And so being able to expand footprints with our existing operators, we're leaning in on that for sure. And so we're definitely doing looking to do that in California. You know, we're investors in this company called Spark. They have a a deep vertical of outdoor cultivation, manufacturing, processing, and then a retail footprint across Northern California and now is expanding into Southern California. And um, so those are the types of things we're doing with that, with that existing fund that we have. We are looking at um, a couple of opportunities that we feel like are in that software space that we feel are just still gaps that are not serving the market, but those companies are a little bit further along and they're showing that they've got real traction. Um, and then we've identified a couple of operators that we think are, are doing really well and who could be poised to be acquired very quickly by an MSO um, who looks to come to California, looks to come to the West Coast and see strong operations, see an accretive addition to their portfolio of assets. So those are the types of things we're looking at there. Um, as we're contemplating the launch of a, a seed stage fund, since we've noticed that there's a gap in funding in that aspect of the industry again, um, that's one of the things we always try to do is identify where there's gaps in funding because that's a great opportunity to play as an investor. And so we've seen some opportunities around that. And we think that, um, you know, this could be a great way to play in some of the branded products that we're seeing just that really are starting to develop some momentum. So that is a little bit early, but um, not as uh, early as some of the other things. And then on the East Coast, definitely could look at some um, early stage operators out there who, again, would probably become uh, poised to be part of a consolidation play in the next couple of years as as the operators just deepen their bench out there. So um, very, very interested in those East Coast markets. Um, couldn't be more thrilled to see, you know, what Morgan was talking about with like New Jersey, New York, um, the Eastern Seaboard coming. Since we're from there and also just because seeing the benefit of legalization on the West Coast and, and these Western states, um, you know, they've, the states have leaned in and done a lot of studies on the impact of legalization and it is definitely a net positive. And so I think all of those states on the Eastern seaboard can benefit from it. And so we're looking forward to playing in that space and would frankly just love to see, you know, more expanded reach for my friends back in New York and Brooklyn and mm -hmm. Boston, being able to access great cannabis instead of having to pay a fortune for a really crummy vape pen at a medical store. Yeah. Well, they will right off the bat, 60 to $80 a gram for concentrate is what California had and Illinois has and everyone will have. But it, of course, we always see those prices coming down. Uh, thanks to our friends at Headset showing us that data. Um, Morgan, anything else that you want to add to uh, 2021? What is your crystal ball prediction? Anything that I didn't include on this list that you kind of see uh, coming through or, or that you are interested in um, investing in this year? Well, we, we touched on hemp early, industrial hemp specifically. I um, think that's great that that's at the top of the list because that's an area that does need a tremendous amount of capital flow to build out uh, the needed infrastructure there. 
um, and a lot of time and development. Um, so that's great to see. Um, international expansion, we didn't really touch on yet. Um, and yeah. I think there's, a, you know, we're very select as we have noted here in the US um, and same thing with international. Um, you know, we've spent a lot of time researching these markets. Um, before COVID, we were traveling a lot um, and we were traveling a lot overseas and, and you know, just trying to get a sense and, and uh, you know, network uh, really across the world. Um, so we keep a pulse on these areas. Um, but an area we invested in was almost two years ago now mm -hmm. in Mexico. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we saw that coming together and saw that to be a very promising market. Mm -hmm. uh, and here we are. You know, now that it's a federally legal medical market. Um, so the United States is now sandwiched between two mm -hmm. federally legal markets. Um, and Mexico mm -hmm. uh, will be multiple times the size of Canada um, at, at its run rate. we got a ways to go. And it's just, again, here we are at the front end of the curve uh, and think that, you know, it's great to see that market coming together. Um, after a little bit of delay, obviously COVID slowed some development. Um, mm -hmm. But we're back in action and, you know, that's, we're so happy for uh, the people of Mexico. We think this could be such a benefit to their country um, mm -hmm. and, you know, opening up new investment opportunity there um, is really interesting. And so uh, that from an international perspective um, is one we're most optimistic about and um, see a lot of problems there. And uh, it's just going to have to be thoughtful and, you know, take your time. We do see capital in this space does, tend to get very undisciplined when when things are, you know, going well. You know, everyone's a genius in a bull market. And we're see, certainly seeing a lot of prognosticators coming out of the woodwork, you know, thinking they know everything about cannabis. And, you know, that's why prices get distorted and capital gets misallocated and, you know, and, and just things happen negatively. But if you stay disciplined, there's some really interesting opportunities. And, and I think Mexico is, is uh, from an international perspective, is right there. Well, yeah, and I think just Josh to tie to your chart on on I think it was number five cannabinoids was oh you have a confident cannabis mug love that company all right um, <laughs> yeah look at that um, yeah the cannab oh number four cannabinoids um, to just to dovetail to Morgan's point um, that is going to be specifically very interesting for that international market play because it's it's not going to necessarily at least initially in the medical side it will be much more about the specific compounds of the plant in different formulations that they can get into the market from a more of like a pharmaceutical standpoint um, and then of course when adult use opens up you'll see more whole plant um, experience like we have in our adult use market here in the u.s but i think the cannabinoids and not just cbd but all of the active compounds and terpenes that will really drive different effects are are, are what we're seeing IP being developed around in that landscape. So more to come there. So with Mexico potentially going legal, uh, you also have Israel again, like you mm -hmm. mentioned, Morgan creating that that sandwich of of FOMO and speculation. Uh, it's going to what is that going to do to um, exit strategies? Do you think it's going to increase the amount that are filing an IPO? Because I want to talk about the the speculation and the crazy stuff in the market with AMC and GameStop and how that's going to impact the the cannabis uh, markets that are publicly traded. Um, but from a legalizes legalization standpoint, any crystal ball, any insight to that? You know, there's, I mean, there certainly is a lot of interest internationally. Um, we just think it's ahead of the, the TAM, right? The total addressable market. 
um, you know, Israel has been a front, uh, has been a leader in research, right, and and, and development. And so, um, you know, that's where you always look for research and what's mm-hmm. what's coming is, you know, so, you know, that country has, has been fantastic there. And, um, but it is, it's a small market um, from a, you know, from an investment perspective. So there's always two things, that, or not just two things, but, you know, there's one thing where it can be really interesting and, and impactful doesn't necessarily mean it's an investment perspective, you know, opportunity. And those two can deviate. They can obviously come together. And, uh, and so that's kind of where we, we look there and certainly look at a lot of opportunities there, but haven't invested there yet um, because it just hasn't felt like the intersection of, of the IP creation and the return on investment. Um, just haven't aligned yet. We always are looking though, because things change constantly. And so we're just, you know, always eyes open and keeping an eye out there. Um, yeah. I don't know if I have too much there other than I know you want to touch on the game stopification. Predator. I do the, the gamification of, of trading um, where a bunch of individuals can take down a hedge fund and, uh, and force them to grab one point five billion dollars just to keep their their short play um i know there's a lot of a lot of people that don't understand the markets and, and they don't really agree with shorting whether you you naked short 140 percent, you think that's moral or ethical or, or honest is is an entirely different uh, subject matter because it is legal uh whether that's fortunate or not um do you have any opinions about what's happening with with amc and gamestop and uh, wall street bets and and how that may impact cannabis stocks I mean, I'll just say that, and I always just get for, a good, by the way, good for retail investors for like digging in and trying to like create some equity and, and access to trading and creating wealth. I think what we're seeing here is that people <clears throat> inherently feel like they don't have access to take their wealth up exponentially like the people do who are in a certain bracket above accredited investor. And so I think that they're, you know, good for people for trying to take that into their own hands. Um I struggle because I'm always like a stickler about let's flow, let's push capital into companies that are building, let's push capital into companies that have like a long run trajectory that are going to be doing stuff. So I struggle with, you know, the, the particular names that were selected to play this. I mean, it was a game, it's a game. And so that's also kind of a frustration for me is that I don't view investing as a game. I view it as a, a real strategic and and um, thoughtful decision process, and it's all about building things for us. But that's where we sit. That's our role in in our investment landscape. Um, I think that we could certainly see this, and I think we already have started. I mean, one of the kind of lower quality cannabis names was lumped into that whole thing. I don't know if you saw that the other day, um, but it was it was in the ticker like basket that was getting uh, played with the other day. So um, it's it's there, but I think. You know there are limitations to that kind of thing happening because we are like our our companies are not traded many of them are not traded on the exchanges and so there's just not the access to it morgan is way savvier on this so i'm going to pass the ball to him but um it's just one of the it's a technical limitation i think to to some of the things that we saw play out with gamestop and amc as it exists today but morgan what do you what do you think yeah, I think you nailed it there with GameStop. I mean, the retail crowd did a phenomenal job. They uncovered uh, an opportunity where everybody was had gotten 
lazy, I would call it. I mean, lazy with risk management, um, lazy from a regulatory perspective, and they they nailed it. And good for them for just totally opening the eyes of structural uh, um, missteps or, or just, again, laziness, uh, because, and they ran it hard, so good for them. But the problem with that is then they think, well, we did it here, where else can we do this? Um, and the derivative of that, like I'm looking at a ticker today of a stock that the common is effectively worthless and the stock is up probably over 100% in the last two days because they think they can do the same thing here where they're not sticking it to the man. They're actually making a very select group of people very wealthy and they're going to be stuck holding the bag because the common is worthless or effectively worthless. And so that's where this becomes, it goes from a trade of probably their lifetime to then potentially losing it all by handing it back. And that's where the problem becomes, uh, where it becomes sad. And, um, and that's, you know, that's what we just don't like to Emily's point. We're builders. We don't like to see capital being destructed. And, and, you know, there is certainly is a casino like mindset to the markets right now. And, and this revenge, which we get, I mean, there's been some structural barriers that have certainly benefited wealthy people um, at the expense of, of who are considered retail or, or dumb money. And they've proven that we're not dumb. Um, but the problem is if they don't keep discipline, the, um, the larger groups, you know, they're learning and they're already going to start to exploit these potential trades. And that's why I said, like, it was a fantastic trade, what they did. That was, and I remember I was hearing about it in the summer uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, about the GameStop setup. And I was like, you know, I thought it was a phenomenal idea. I was, but we invest in cannabis. It's not something we do, but, but I was like, yeah, they're, you know, they're onto something here. And, um, but anyway, yeah, the, the, the longer term implications do concern us. And, and nice thing about cannabis outside of some of these select names that Emily mentioned, you know, the one that was initially caught up in that, you know, they've raised a ton of money off of this. They've benefited, they bailed them out. And again, that's not, that's going to come at the retail investors expense. They just got diluted like yeah. crazy. If they didn't get out, they're going to get washed out. And like the one I'm looking at right now, same thing. Like this is going to, they're going to get hammered if they're not out in time. And the hold on for dear life crowd doesn't understand that there's not uh, a, that there's a finite number. They think, you know, like, like crypto, that there's a, a certain number of Bitcoins, whereas outstanding number of outstanding shares can just keep being issued uh, oh, wow. technically, you know? Right. And so, so I don't think they really understand the valuations. Yeah. It's a, it's a little yeah. scary. And I think there's some commonality between, you know, if we can make a comparison with the CBD industry and some snake oil um, with a lot of the, the stock market, um, where is the trust factor? If people are going to try and invest in things that aren't pump and dump, that aren't penny stocks, that are legitimate cannabis companies, are they going to invest themselves or are they going to have to utilize technology like artificial intelligence to allow those trading platforms to trade for them? Uh, I, don't know. I guess it's a trust factor. Are they, Is this going to deteriorate yeah. the entire because there is no fundamentals. Let's be honest about that. Yeah. People have been trading off technicals for a long time. So where do you get your information to trade? I don't know. Maybe that's a podcast for another day. Yeah, <laughs> that's like, yeah, that's roll up your sleeves and dig in. But, you know, and it's like Morgan and I always talk about this quote from Buffett, which is in the short term, the market's a voting machine in the long term, it's a weighing machine. Uh -huh. And, you know, I think that's that's kind of how, you know, we like to think about it. You can play in you can play in that kind of voting movement um, and do it for a little bit. But you got you have to get out before you before it goes against you. But 
we like to, you know, build things that in, in the long run, the weighing machine really proves that they were their value drivers in society. And, and that whole notion of if you build something good, the returns will be good from it. Yeah. There is a lot of advantages to have private companies like you guys have mentioned uh, in the podcast just today about, um, you know, not having to worry about the quarter to quarter, um, you know, investors and, and the numbers behind it and just allowing for that organic and natural growth to happen without a lot of forced uh, numbers to appease people who aren't really um, into or, or truly invested in the company. They're just looking for a monetary return. Yeah. Yeah. Price and fundamental rarely intersect in the public markets you know it's usually just for moments in time um, but fundamentals on the private side you know it's, it's a much different market and um, and that's the challenge for companies that do look to exit is if you're on the wrong side of that timing you could be penalized or it could be fantastic and you know certainly everyone seems very smart for going public right now because the markets are, are fantastic but uh, you know people it's amazing how quickly memories fade uh, yeah, it's the longest bull run in history. Like you couldn't go wrong. Right. But in cannabis, we went through an, what was an 82% drawdown. That wasn't that long ago. That ended last March, not even a year ago. And, you know, we're off those lows nicely, but that was an incredibly challenging period of time. That capital recession was brutal. It caused a lot of, uh, uh, you know, what we called the Darwin phase, but so that was a natural, necessary force that got companies in a good position. And those that made it through, you know, are, are why we're talking about all the other things we're talking about today, because they managed through that. They, you know, they stayed disciplined or they, you know, made good decisions that kept them in the game through a very challenging period of time. And so, you know, there is a bit of, you know, rightfully rewarding them with some multiple expansion. But again, it, you know, I feel like price and fundamentals have, uh, once you're public, I mean, that's, it's just momentary and, and who knows where we'll go from here. Um, you know, um, is it Matt McGinley is a Needham analyst. He does some fantastic reports. He's really and, good. Um, uh, he did one analysis comparing cannabis to other highly regulated industries like alcohol and tobacco, looking that. at profit margins and EBITDA margins. And here we are trading similarly to them, but we're growing. These companies are growing 50, hundred percent versus them low single digits. So, you know, as the federal legalization risk declines, meaning that there's, you know, visibility towards that, uh, then, then arguably on a relative valuation perspective, we should be trading at a premium. So when people are like, oh, the markets have gotten out of control, um, you know, don't forget that the stock market is a market of stocks and looking at the individual companies tells a vastly different story than just a brushstroke. That's a beautiful way to wrap that all up. Is there anything I missed? Anything else you guys want to cover before we, we wrap up this podcast? No, thank you for having us on. Yeah, thank I appreciate you. it. Where can people... Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> where where can people find you at? Uh, we're at Poseidon.partners is our website. You can follow us at Poseidon Asset on Twitter. We're pretty active on there. We kind of dropped Facebook. I'm not into it. Um, <laughs> Morgan, what, what's our uh, LinkedIn? Is it at Poseidon Asset? I can never remember that. Find us on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah we'll have all those links in the show notes anyways. I'm, I'm, Facebook is a black hole for me too. It's uh, yeah, yeah, kind of a nasty little platform there. <laughs> so we'll, yeah. we'll have all your social oh, and media and, and links in there. Go ahead. 
Yeah, and you can also find, if you follow me on Medium, we post a lot of content from Poseidon on there as well. Um, we do a, we're do we writing more and more about valuation, structuring, a lot of things that we think a lot about. So, Perfect. All right, I want to thank my guests, Emily Paxia, Morgan Paxia, co-founders of Poseidon Asset Management. Appreciate you guys being on the podcast. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. <laughs> Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canada podcasters right here on PodConX and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.